0: Hey, deserving listeners. I thought I would answer some patron emails here today. This first email is from patron Claire from Bellevue, Washington, which is close to where I grew up and close to where I live right now. She writes There was a YouTuber recently named Micah Stoffer, or Mika Stoffer, who made a video about rehoming her adopted autistic son. Can you talk about this or the rehoming of adopted children in general and the effect it has on the child? End of email. So I've been getting a lot of emails about this uh, story. It's blowing up on the internet right now. Micah Stauffer, I'm guessing it's pronounced. So if you don't know, this is what I've heard. And I haven't looked into it because I suspect I won't find anything that will tell me exactly what happened. And also, I don't really want to become one of those YouTubers who gets involved in these internet storms. Um, so, this is what I've heard from people. And a lot of this could be wrong. So, take everything with a grain of salt. If you're here because you want to hear a definitive account of what happened, uh, go somewhere else. This is not the place. So, people have been emailing me, and I was interviewed on another podcast to talk about these things. And they told me about what happened. And essentially, there's a YouTuber. And it's a family. And the YouTuber is or the YouTube channel is led by this woman who has a lot of videos on parenting and how to live your best life, how to clean your house, how to eat well, how to exercise well, how to love your kids, how to, you know, all these kinds of things. You know, if you're unaware of this sort of thing, there's a fair amount of YouTubers that do this sort of thing. So apparently she had a fair amount of popularity on YouTube. I don't think she was gigantic, but I think she probably made her living from the YouTube videos or at least part part of her living. I don't know. And from what I understand, she adopted a child from China a number of years ago or some time ago, and she involves her children in her videos, lots of monetized videos, videos with ads uh, about her children, her biological children and the adopted child. And then at some point, the, there was an announcement made on the YouTube channel that they had, quote unquote, rehomed the child, which I have to say, as someone who has worked with a lot of adoptive families, I've never heard that term before. Maybe that's a new term that people are using, but so essentially they adopted the child for a while. It didn't work out and they uh, gave the child back or put the child in a foster care. I'm not really quite sure. And they made some videos explaining what had happened. And according to this podcast I was interviewed on, they said that she appeared to be fake crying. And there's huge YouTube outrage about this, that she's fake, that she's a hypocrite, that she's exploiting children and accusations that she basically had purposely adopted a child for views and to make money and then callously threw the child away because parenting was difficult with him. And she is now losing sponsors and she's being canceled by the Internet. So, again, I haven't looked into it, so take everything I say with a grain of salt. Like I said, uh, I have better things to do than to investigate some YouTuber based on little information. But there there are some things worth talking about. The first thing I'll say, just because I'm going to go into some nuance here, is... Yeah, she could be a terrible, awful, psychopathic, evil human being. I have no idea. She could be a callous, selfish, fake exploiter of other people. She might be that or, you know, on that spectrum. She could be based on the details we have. You know, it's a possibility. But from what I've heard, I don't think anyone knows enough about her to know one way or the other. As far as I can tell, I see two possibilities. One is that she's an evil, awful human being who exploits children and then abandons them. But the second possibility, and again, I have no idea, it, that but I, from the information available to me, I could see pot being possible, is that she's a good person, but a naive person who adopted a child with good intentions, but things didn't work out, and... It led to, quote, unquote, rehoming. And let me explain. So unless you work in adoption like I have or you have adopted a child with behavioral problems, this situation might sound very strange to you where you're like, wait, what? You adopt a child from China and then you rehome them? I mean, what is wrong with you? Okay. So I have worked there, – there was a time in my career, early in my career, maybe the first five years, ten years, where a good portion, probably you know 5%, maybe a little less, but that was a lot of clients that dealt with this very issue where a family had adopted a child, and the child had significant behavior problems, and the adoptive parents were wanting to put the child into foster care. And then the state would pay me to go into the home, evaluate the situation, and try to prevent the parents from putting the child into foster care. Because once the child goes into foster care, it's very expensive for the state and possibly for the adoptive family. And if a cheap family therapist can solve the problem, then obviously there's money saved in that scenario. So the county or the state, I can't remember where the money came from, but social services would pay me to go into the home, and I worked with many of these families. And here are my impressions, and this is anecdotal, but there were dozens of families I worked with, was that the vast majority of the parents that I worked with were saints. These people were some of the most loving, self-sacrificial people on the planet. If you're listening out there and you have the capability, I'm guessing a lot of you have the capability to adopt a child right now. I'm guessing many of you don't. But many of you probably have a big enough home, you know, that you could put two or three kids in a bedroom. You have enough money to to spread around, you know, and you have the time if you stress yourself. And I'm guessing most of you are not choosing to adopt a child. Why are you not adopting a child? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons that a lot of people will say is, well, I don't want to. (laughs) So the people who are adopting these children are the people that I worked with. They were saints, these people. Now, they weren't saints in all aspects of their lives. But in this act, this selfless act of adopting a child who they know will probably come to them with attachment issues with potentially uh you know genetic dispositions to drug abuse this kinds of things there's these are good people and sometimes they would give their child back or put their child in the foster care even though they were wonderful wonderful people now in the world some terrible people do this too but I didn't come across anyone like that. I'm sure that they exist. I've heard reports, but I think the vast majority of there's there's much more easy ways to uh, be evil in the world aside from going through the whole rigmarole of trying to adopt someone and then what you know. Like it's not a it's not a very easy scheme if you're an evil person. It does happen. There are reports and and studies and. Criminal cases in which people will adopt and sexually abuse the kids, it happens, but it's pretty rare. So some of you might be thinking, well, wait a second, why would wonderful parents give their adopted child back to the adoption agency or put their child into foster care? Why would they rehome their a child, a, an innocent little child? Well, a very common thing that would happen. Is that when the child is adopted past a certain age, and we can, and it could even just be like six months old, the child comes with significant attachment damage already done to them. Essentially, it's neurological damage. A lot of these children come from places where they don't have foster homes. So the kids go into an institution or into a kind of a foster home where they don't get one on one love, and attention. And when you do that to a child early in life, they usually will develop some kind of attachment disorder. And these are not minor issues. These are pervasive personality issues that last a lifetime for a lot of these people. Not always, but often. So if you have a kid who was in an institution in China or Korea or Russia from the age of 0,000, to one or zero to two or zero to three, or from the age of like two to five, then in all likelihood, that kid neurologically is different than other kids. Now, I heard that the Mika Stoffer kid had also some kind of brain damage of some sort, but um, I couldn't get a straight story on that. I'm, I'm guessing if I looked into it, I would know, but that is potentially part of the story as well. But anyway... Now, you might be saying, well, what's the big deal about attachment issues? Well, let me tell you. Now, this isn't always the case, but I saw many cases like this. I usually was called in when the kid uh, became a teenager because that's usually when the the behavioral uh, shit would hit the fan, if you will. And the kid would be essentially acting psychopathic, complete lack of remorse, Exploitation of others, stealing from everyone in the family, staying out at all night, lots of drug abuse, gang activity, violence, threats, uh, lying to CPS that you were sexually abused, this kind of thing. This would happen, and I would work with these families for months, even years. I worked with one family for over a decade And so I got to know these kinds of conditions and their behaviors. Pathological lying is another thing. So now it's not their fault. The child is doing this because of attachment, potential neurological damage, that developmental damage that happens when you neglect a child significantly when they're young. Now, I want to check in. I'm not saying that Mika Stauffer or Micah Stauffer's kid was this way because I didn't look into it, and, I, and frankly, I don't care to. But I will use this story as a jumping-off point to educate people about what's happening. Now, I will say that if you are thinking about adopting, and now you're thinking second, you're, you know, you're having second thoughts about it because of what I'm saying, I will tell you that if you involve a specialist and a team of people, you can absolutely adopt a child with these significant issues and succeed and help help that child because that's the thing ironically the children with the most attachment injury are they, they need the most help with attachment security they need a secure home more than any other child on the planet but their behavior is such that it makes it really hard to place them and really hard to keep them in one spot so it's, it's a tragedy so You ask patron, what was your name again? (laughs) Claire from Bellevue. Is the child going to be harmed? You know, is is there a damage that can happen? Absolutely. Probably. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's dependent on a lot of factors, but when you have a child that has attachment issues already, they're told you found a home and you're going to live there the rest of your life. And then you're uh, rejected, you know, and children particularly young children, have no ability to sift through that experience. You know, they don't have the ability to sit down and say, you know what, I have attachment issues, which aren't my fault, which lead to behaviors that stem from those attachment issues. And thus, you know, the parents that adopted me, they are putting me with another home, not because I'm a bad person, but because, you know, I have some issues that aren't my fault. You know, children can't say that, right? (laughs) What they're going to say to themselves is, I'm a terrible person, And other people can't be trusted. But in all likelihood, in a lot of adopted situations like this, they have already uh, learned that lesson in full effect prior to being adopted already. So the damage of moving the child into foster care could be minuscule compared to the massive amount of damage the child had already experienced. Because remember that most of our personality development and our attachment security development occurs in the first few years of life. So it's a tragedy. And that's all that there is to it. There are a lot of wonderful parents. And I don't know if Mika Stauffer is a wonderful person or not. Like I said, she could be an evil, manipulative, terrible human being. But I will tell you clinically, I've worked with a lot of saintly parents who adopted children who were already six months old or five years old and proceeded to really struggle with those kids and at the very least had questions, lying awake at night, staring into the darkness, saying, should I give this child back? Just to give you an idea of the kind of behavior well, I won't go into details, but just let it be known that I knew I can think of this one family in particular where the adopted child would would basically he basically seemed like he was uh, a Charlie Manson or a Ted Bundy. Now, I know enough about development to know that he could this adopted kid could grow out of it, but he targeted the younger children with violence and severe abuse. He made the, he wanted the family to be afraid of him and through his behavior. And the parents had reason to believe that he might come into the house, into their bedroom in the middle of the night and slash their throats. Now are all adopted kids like this? No, (laughs) no, good number of you listening right now were adopted yourself or did adopt kids. And everything worked out fine, or worked out normally fine, <laughs> where you had the normal amount of difficulties raising the, the kid. So I, I want to be clear on that. But occasionally, this sort of thing does happen. And from the research and what I could tell, it's it's because of the attachment disruption that the child had early in life. So if uh, imagine yourself you have your other kids and this this adopted person who comes into your house and you have all these positive thoughts you have all these hopes and dreams and then all and then flash you know fast forward a year and you're lying awake at night wondering if this kid is going to kill you or seriously harm one of your other children and you've done everything You've gone to therapists. You've gone to specialists. You've gone to psychiatrists. You've gone to social workers. You've done everything. You've you've signed them up for classes and camps, and nothing has worked. I've been there before, people. I don't know if Mika Stauffer is in that case, but I, I'm using this as a jumping-off point to talk about that. So often I, I always say this, that whenever I see a cultural storm like this, I often am more interested in the crowd of people than the incident itself. I always bring up like when I went to the Louvre in Paris and I finally got to the portion of the Louvre where they have the Mona Lisa, I was very briefly interested in the Mona Lisa. And then the rest of the time just spent, Watching the crowd of people as they tried to get as close as they could and take their selfies and work their way to the front of the crowd, and I have all this video footage of them because I, I just I was just so fascinated with human behavior. I'm not above human behavior. I am a human. I'm just as messy and silly as any, as the next person. But but it is my I don't know my observational nature. I was told when I was very young I was very observant. <laughs> which sounds sort of creepy, you know, like a three-year-old who just is very observant of everything. My aunt claims that she was intimidated by me because I was so observant with my eyes when I was three years old. (laughs) Anyway, so with this situation, I'm no different. I'm just as creepy and observant. And I am looking at everyone as they look at this and I don't have the information, but I suspect there's not a lot of information to go off of. You you, you weren't there. And because one of the things that I think could be happening here is that the child that they adopted could have had significant behavioral issues that, one, they never displayed in the YouTube videos because they weren't comfortable doing that for whatever reason. And or two... They don't want to use that data as a defense for why they rehomed him, because they want to not, um, I don't know, uh, paint the child in a negative light. So th- there's, so I don't know that, but I could see a parent saying, "I'm gonna re- quote unquote rehome this child." And when people ask me about it, I'm just going to say it didn't work out because I don't want to talk crap about this child whom I really loved for a time in my life. Again, I have no idea about Mika Stoffer. Again, she could be an evil, horrible, pathological, psychopathic human being. I have no idea. But when I look at the crowd of people watching this, I suspect that they are reacting to something that is triggering their abandonment traumas most of us have at least some abandonment trauma and some of us have significant abandonment traumas. And a lot of us have grief about that. A lot of us have traumas about that. And when we, when we hear this story on the internet about this narcissistic YouTuber who rehomes this child and, adopts this child and monetizes the video and then rehomes it has all of the flavor of the way it felt to us as we were being abandoned at the age of 5 or 10 or 15 where it felt to us like it was evil and selfish and narcissistic and exploitative and unfair and this innocent child is being harmed. And that's how it was for us. And so all of our unhealed trauma, all of our feelings that are bottled up from years past, it all gets displaced onto this woman. Again, she might deserve it, but what if she doesn't? So if you're one of those people, I hope that you can recognize your worth and that you deserve to heal from those traumas. Um, you know, Is it okay for you to hate her? Sure, you know your feelings are your feelings. Is it okay that sh- you think she's a terrible person? I guess so, but again, I wonder what's triggering you. Uh, I would hope that if you do have abandonment traumas that you do get the help you deserve for that, meaning therapy or secure attachments in your life. The other topic that is relevant here is using children in YouTube videos. Now there are laws because we've had television and we had to have laws to protect children from being exploited on television because the issue is how can a autistic young child consent to being monetized on someone's YouTube channel? Well, they can't, even if they did consent, we would say, well, they're not old enough to know what they're talking about, right? So it does bring up a very interesting question. You know, I'm guessing that we will have laws in the future to address this practice. I'm guessing what, it'll, what it will take is, because reality TV is a similar issue, is that Reality TV stars like Honey Boo Boo and stuff are probably going to grow up and say that it wasn't a good experience for them and that they wish that there were laws to protect kids from this. And so I suspect in the United States anyway that there will be more laws in the future that will uh, expand the laws from television into these other areas. But – With social media, it raises this very weird question. For you parents out there, how many of you have posted a picture of your kids on Facebook? That's social media. And so are we saying that those sorts of things can't be monetized? Is that what we're saying? Like maybe you can't make money from posting? Well, what if you had a YouTube channel where you monetize some videos, but you didn't monetize – the videos with your kids in it. So it it raises this very weird thing because there there'd be a situation potentially where you have this law that says parents do not have the freedom to post pictures of their own children with you know just a selfie with their kids in it on any social media. Because where's the line between a you know Mika Stoffer and a parent who just wants to share on YouTube about their life. So I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I, I, I really wish that as a society, we would look in a very sober way um, and not in a way that is Twitter oriented, if you will, <laughs> you know, Twitter arguments, as opposed to ethicists and experts sitting down and debating this and thinking about what's best for children and how to balance that with human freedoms, because we're not a police state and we value our freedom in this country. And so we, there are a lot of things to consider and we need to research this. And perhaps most importantly, we need to educate parents on the implications. Did Mika Stoffer, Mika Stauffer, was she educated properly or did she give, was she given an opportunity be, to become educated about the implications of involving her children in a YouTube video like this? I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing not. In conclusion, I wish all of this energy on the Internet, of which there's a lot, was put to solving the problem at hand. Millions of children are being abandoned as we speak. Millions of children need a home as we speak. Millions of children are being abused as we speak. And what are we doing about it? Are we just getting in a YouTube, Twitter outrage? Or are we actually going to put our energy towards solutions? So what are those solutions? Well, I'm here to tell you some. You can donate to uh, adoption charities, charities, uh, A good one that I found is Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. gets high ratings, so you can donate money. You can become a foster home or an adoptive family yourself. And if you are one, thank you so much. On behalf of society and the human race, you are a saint. You can vote for politicians who pay attention to child well-being and fund child welfare programs, by the way, something that is often not talked about. How many politicians run on a platform of child well-being? I don't know any. I'm sure they happen, but it's usually like gun laws and, you know, just what I believe to be not as consequential as child well-being. <laughs> I mean, come on. So, you know, and it could be argued that if you fund child welfare programs, there would be less uh, personality issues that would result in people using guns for bad reasons to begin with. I hope, you know, I hope you know what I'm saying. You could also become someone in the helping profession, guardian ad litem, these sorts of things, and or becoming a therapist who helps families stay together as they go through this and so on. There are things that we can do. So if you're one of those people that's upset, obviously you're entitled to your feelings And maybe you're right. Maybe this person is a fake, hypocritical, exploitative, horrific human being. I don't know. I I don't really care (laughs) because that's up to whatever state they live in. Child Protective Services could get involved. It's not really for me. But what I will say is that I do plan on donating to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Um. I am a therapist who does help people in situations like this, and I do plan on voting for politicians who pay attention to this. And again, if you can become a foster home, and while I'm on the foster home thing, (laughs) there are pet foster homes as well. Uh, We actually currently are fostering a cat who, sadly, will probably pass away soon. If you're following on Instagram or Facebook, I hate to break this to you. It's a very sad, sad thing, but the um, the bigger cat, if you will, uh, she has cancer and might not make it much long, and it's a very sad situation in our house right now. So yeah, <laughs> but you can become a foster home to animals as well, but obviously, to this topic at hand, becoming a foster home to human children is a wonderful, wonderful thing that you can do. If if you're upset about this, and you want to make a difference, there are things you can do besides targeting this woman with your cancellation efforts. Not that she shouldn't be canceled. Maybe she should be canceled. I don't know. Okay, well, tell me what you think. Comment below. Take it easy on me. I'm doing my best here. And again, if you just want to point out details to me about what happened and about this woman, I, I don't care. I, I'm not interested in learning more details about her. I, I, I know that sounds harsh, I'm sorry, but um, it's there are I've been podcasting for 12 years and I've learned that I just don't really care to get involved in these kinds of internet storms. i I will say that very occasionally I will only if I believe it can help people with what's happening with their lives as a jumping off point, like the reaction videos that that's how that all started was I was watching love is blind. And I was like, man, these people suffer from a almost universal problem in couple communication, I E attachment threats and attachment reactivity. And I could use this videos to help people out there understand to use this as an example. And so I did that with me. Gustafor is that, okay, let's use this as a jumping off point to educate people about the reality of adoption, the reality of attachment, the reality of um, what to do about it. I guess another thing I'll say that I'm thinking about it is that attach. It's not just a foreign issue, right? That kids, Being born into families that either one, don't want the child or two, can't parent the child is happening in your town right now. There are people who have significant traumas that result in significant drug addiction, which can contribute to a lack of family planning, which can result in unwanted uh, children being born into families that uh, cannot take care of them. And they will be abused, abandoned, this sort of thing. So that's happening right in your own town. And that's another thing that you could do is to help raise awareness for people to get help for their addiction. But more importantly, the traumas that contribute to their drug addiction to begin with. To child welfare programs that actually reach out to these families and actually helps them and doesn't do it in a way that makes them want to hide from the authorities. I used to work with families like this sometimes, and I'd go into the home and I'd and I would sit down with the parents, and I'd say things like, "Look, I'm not here to. I'm I'm just a therapist. I if I wanted to take your kids away, I wouldn't be able to, and I don't want to take your kids away. What I am here to do is to let's try to fix this problem. Me, you know, what can I do to support your family? And in order for therapists to be able to do that, there has to be funds, and these programs are totally underfunded. And then these kids end up being abandoned and harmed and because of lack of support and lack of treatment. All those traumatized people, if, if they had known about their traumas and gotten the treatment uh, well before, you know, they had the opportunity to dive into the downward spiral of addiction and lifestyle degradation. Uh, think of all the good we could be doing in the world to end the, the need for adoption in for these sorts of situations. All right. Tough situation all around. So let's take a break and we get back. Let's continue reading patron emails. All right. This next email is from upper tier patron Natasha from California. She writes, I'd be interested in an episode on the attempt at assertive communication from the insecure person coming across coming across, coming off as aggressive and how to remedy that, so if I understand her question correctly, she's saying that you know I want to be assertive and I'm also insecure, and I'm socially anxious, but sometimes I seemingly come across as aggressive to people when I'm trying to be just assertive. How do I remedy that? Well, the first thing I'll say is that there is sexism in the world, Natasha, as you know. And when a woman is being assertive, she's more likely, and research shows this, that she's going to be seen as aggressive as opposed to assertive. Whereas a a male who is being assertive is less likely to be interpreted as aggressive. So women are at a disadvantage, just perception from other people wise. Um, you, you will be assertive and from the outside evaluator you do all the right moves and yet people will still see you as being aggressive and they'll get upset about that and that's unfair and that's what sexism is, which is terrible. So we just have to realize that that's the landscape that we live in and, you know, we try to change that, but that is the landscape. The other thing I'll say is that I have worked with people who do tell me as clients that they come across as aggressive and they are trying to be assertive instead. And one of the things that I've seen, I don't know if this is the case for um, what you're talking about, Natasha, but some people have a lot of uh, traumas that they have been through in their life where there's been a lot of injustice and they they walk around with a chip on their shoulder, which makes sense there's a a amount of anger and distrust and um, aggression that naturally pops up when you feel like you're being transgressed upon. And so there's all this justifiable anger and justifiable resentment and justifiable contempt. And when one tries to be assertive, it can perhaps that energy can kind of sneak in there unbeknownst to you And to others, it's noticeable and comes across as aggressive instead of just being assertive. So that's something to think about, obviously, getting therapy so that you can heal from your traumas and help to have a voice. The other thing is that with that resentment, with that anger, we don't want to just get rid of it because there's good reasons why you have it. And where do you put it? And I was recently talking with a colleague about this very question that anger is good. Anger is wonderful. It tells us that we are being transgressed upon and it motivates us to seek justice for ourselves to get our needs met. Someone steals our bicycle and we get angry and we call the cops or we go get the bicycle. Someone steps on our foot and we get angry and we push them away from us So anger is good. Anger is wonderful. And so many people, particularly women, are taught that anger is bad and that you need to have anger management and that you need to suppress your anger and deal with your anger and manage your anger and move on from your anger. No. Anger is telling you about your needs. And but you have to get in touch with that what are your needs where is that anger coming from that anger is telling you something it's alerting you to something but maybe it's not readily apparent as to what that anger is actually trying to tell you if you're not in touch with what your anger is trying to tell you you're apt to just point that anger in directions that maybe aren't in your best interest so where do you point the anger well that's hard to know And I see people will sometimes just something will trigger them and they'll feel angry and they will feel justified in their anger and they usually are. And then they just pour all of their, the lifetime of their resentment and contempt and injustice into this one interaction. And sometimes sometimes it works out fine, but sometimes it doesn't. It might cloud your judgment in the moment. So like I said, anger is good and anger tells us something about what's happening and anger deserves to be expressed. But just because one is angry at someone doesn't mean that that is the best venue to express your anger. You know, you, you want to choose your battles. You want to be strategic about your anger. You want to predict the future. In other words, as you're about to express your anger, you, or your quote, unquote, assertiveness, you want to think, okay, what's the what's likely to happen from me doing this, when I head down this path? I'll tell you a story. I used to live downtown Seattle, and I lived in a condo building, and I lived on the the bottom floor. So I had a door that went right out into uh, the street. And there was a a condo, a couple floors up and they would always smoke cigarettes and they would drink and they would flick their cigarette butts onto my, they they would just flick the garbage and cigarette butts or, or vomit from drinking too much, just right off of their balcony, um, banister. And my, my balcony, my deck was bigger than theirs. And so everything would just come right down onto my deck. But it was basically my front yard and my front sort of uh, stoop, if you will. And they would loogie, you know, they'd, they'd uh, I don't know if you know what a loogie is, but they'd bring their snot from their nose into their mouth and spit onto my yard. And this was my front door. Like I said, I would walk in and out of this door and I was, and sometimes I'd be walking out and spit would come down from the sky. And I would tell them, to stop doing that. There's, there's no reason why you need to spit over the railing. You can spit into a, you know, a cup or something, go to the, go to the sink. If you have to spit and why are you spitting anyway? It's gross. And then you don't need to put litter over the railing. It's not, you know, it's just, it's this notion that they had. It's just like, if it goes over the railing, it just disappears. Cause I'm guessing if, they were walking up to me on on a street. They wouldn't vomit on my head or they wouldn't throw cigarette butts into my face. They just have this uh, lack of intelligence that can't imagine that beyond the railing is another world and there are consequences. (laughs) So I would have to tell them occasionally, like stop doing that and they wouldn't really stop. And so it really drove me crazy because to live in a, in a, in your own condo that you paid good money for and to pay hundreds of dollars for a condo association that's supposed to deal with stuff like this and to have calmly and nicely asked them to change their behavior. It would infuriate me. I would have parties at my house with my family and I, my grandmother, she would have been, I don't know, 98 years old at the time. And she was coming over and I was just terrified that they were going to spit a loogie on top of her head as she was walking in and out of my place. And it it was, it was a, it was a whole epic thing that lasted many years. And I was very angry, but I thought about it often and said, okay, I want to just go up there and get in a fight with them. Or I, I don't know. I just want to I just want to retaliate because I've asked them so many times and they keep doing it. And they're almost like laughing in my face about it. So what do I do? What's the strategy? I'm angry. I'm justified. There's an injustice here. I'm in the right. I've asked them nicely. There's no reason why they're doing this, but what do I do? What's the strategy? If I go upstairs and yell at them, that's one option. But that means that that might escalate them. I might do something that I'm in the wrong for if I punch him in the face or something. So what's the strategy? I deserve justice. I deserve to express my anger, but I also have to be strategic because I'm not in a relationship with these people. You know, if this was my friend and I, and I could sort of get into it with them and say, Hey, you know, let's have a conversation. These people already hate me and think I'm some sort of anal retentive neighbor. So, you know, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to like become their friend for a few months and then ask them to stop doing it. So what do I do? Well, I won't go into all the details, but I managed through political means, diplomatic means to get them to stop essentially, long story short, there was a, they were renting the condo from a landlord and, I made the condo association threaten the landlord with fines if if I found any more garbage on my porch. And I had to go on this months months and months and months campaign of like documenting the garbage and the spit and everything. And eventually the landlord just forbade the people to go out on the deck. The landlord just said you can't, you know, I'm going to lock the door you as tenants are, are barred from going out on the deck anymore because you, you haven't been able to um, change your behavior. And the, the tenants were like, well, we changed our behavior, but you know, our guests are doing this. Well, it's like, well then, you know, you stop. How hard is it to tell your guests, by the way, don't throw anything over the railing. There are people down there <laughs> anyway. And it worked. Hallelujah, it worked, but it was years of a campaign. It was years of me trying to suppress the urge to go up there and throw I don't know, a stick of dynamite into their into their condo and run away. Took you know, I, I thought about installing cameras or I don't know, getting a hose and spraying them down when they're on there. There are all these different things I thought of, but I I I tried to be predictive of the future and it worked now i have i've learned my lesson is the thing from past experiences and so in that instance it worked out well in other instances you know it didn't work out well so that's another thing to think about with with your anger if if your assertive communication is coming across as aggressive due to unexpressed or unheard or i don't know injustices that are sort of milling around in your soul, then finding a way to express that strategically can be a wonderful thing. I, I, I feel and did at the time so much better because I expressed my anger. I didn't bow down, but I also didn't shoot myself in the foot as I did it. It felt good, man. Did it feel good? Did it feel good to see that on, you know, because they smoked. So these these, these guys, there was, I think there were like five guys or something living in this small condo. And they all, or they seemingly all smoked. And it, it gave me a beautiful joy that they couldn't smoke on their own deck anymore. <laughs> because of years of them spitting loogies on my deck. I think one time they literally even spit on me, if I remember right. Can you imagine that? So uh, it felt good (laughs) to express anger and to have it go well. So I think, you know, I I don't know. It just comes to mind in terms of that sort of thing. Now, how do you be assertive in a way that doesn't come across aggressive? Well, a big part of it is getting to know how you come across to people. And this is something that we can all benefit from is... Ask a friend of yours, look, I just want you to be honest with me. How do I really come across to people? How do I come across to you? Really just ask for the honest opinion. It's like if you're walking around with a booger hanging out of your nose or your zipper is down, you want your friend to point that out to you, right? You want, you want, you know, your good friends will tell you, you got a booger on your nose. You know, clean that up because I don't want you to be embarrassed for yourself. I'm going to tell you right away. Well, the same goes for the way we come across to people. Ask people around you, do when I'm being assertive, do I come across as aggressive? What about me is coming across as aggressive? So that's one thing. The other thing is that when you're trying to be assertive and and is to try to feel compassion. Try to under try to understand maybe where the other person is coming from. Uh, maybe that's the more important thing is if you try to imagine, like, let's have an example of, well, like, a total fictional situation. Let's say that I am driving on the freeway and I change lanes and it's a little too close for comfort for someone behind me. And, and they start honking at me and they start flipping me off. And then we both... I pull into the grocery store and they pull in too, and we run into each other in the parking lot, just, you know, awkwardly. And the guy is just like, nice driving. Okay. So in that moment, I might want to be assertive with that person, right? (laughs) I might want to say something like, uh, Hey, take it easy. Or I didn't mean to, or I wasn't actually that close to you or something. But if I just act normally I'm going to come across probably to that person as aggressive or at least in a way that they aren't going to appreciate. So if I take a beat and try to imagine what's going on inside that person is, that causes them to do what I think to be really strange behavior and if I just think, okay, well, what's going on? He probably was really scared. He, He might have some traumas around driving. He might have some traumas around having his space invaded people who freak out on the roads are usually traumas are being triggered for them. People who are flipping people off, threatening people with guns or, you know, chasing people down because of this and that. It's usually not because they woke up in the morning and said that they want to be an a-hole. It's because they have traumas. They've, they've incurred injustices and they, uh, react very, very strongly when there's an injustice, what something that they perceive as being an injustice. And so if I think about that, I think, okay, well, that's probably where he's coming from. He's probably really scared. He's not expressing the fear. He's expressing his anger and contempt for me, and I don't think he's being very fair about it. But I'm not going to kick someone while they're down. And so I might say something like, if I if I hold that in my heart about them, but I want to be assertive with them, I might say something like, "Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, I guess my driving must have scared you in that moment, and I'm sorry about that. Um, it wasn't my intention to 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 make you feel like I was encroaching on your space. There, I'm, I'm sorry about. I'm sorry that you that you felt that way. I'm sorry I made you feel that way. Having said that, I would I, I felt like I was far enough in front of you that I could get over." And, um, I think according to the law, I was far enough ahead of you to merge into your lane. So I just thought I would tell you that, you know, who knows how that would go, (laughs) but it's probably going to go better than if I just went with the second part of that message. Right. Or you're at work and you want to tell your boss, that he is a tyrant well just saying hey i'm going to assert myself and you're a tyrant that person might perceive me as being aggressive whereas if i came to them and said look i know you're under a lot of stress i know i I know you care about your job a lot i know you have a lot on your plate a lot of responsibilities i see that i recognize that i sympathy for that and I think sometimes you take it out on me sometimes, and I would appreciate it if you didn't do that because it really hurts my feelings. So that's assertiveness. And it might be perceived as aggressive if there's a sexist workplace that doesn't want women to speak up. So, but there are things that can mitigate that, like the things that I'm saying. There's a lot more that I could say, but I think I'll end it there. Let's go on to another email. What do you say? All right, this next email is from Iwin. Uh, They write, I went back and listened to all your episodes on projective identification and transference, and now I'm wondering, does having a strong sense of self mean that you are less prone to have dysfunctional projective identification? So if you're new to the podcast and you don't know what projective identification is or even a strong sense of self, I would go back and listen to those episodes. You can go to our website and search for different keywords, and you can find episodes. If you go to the episode list and uh, sort of look at all the different titles, you can you can find all the episodes there. Anyway, so they, they're writing, I went back, does having a strong sense of self mean that you are less prone to have dysfunctional projective identification? So the answer is yes, uh, you're less prone, because when you have a strong sense of self... That means that you understand who you are, you're in touch with your emotional uh, impulses, you trust your emotional impulses, you know how to uh, probably regulate your emotions better because a strong sense of self lends itself to that. And so you probably don't need to use projective identification as much because you aren't in denial about your own needs, if that makes any sense, when when you aren't given a chance to develop a sense of self, you have all these needs that are roiling around inside of you that aren't really being noticed by your conscious mind, and you need defenses to deal with that. And projective identifications are one of the ways. Projective identification is one of the ways that you can deal with that, um, but. But they kind of are not super related. You you can certainly have a strong sense of self and absolutely still engage in dysfunctional projective identification. Projective identification, in, in my model, and not everyone sees it this way, is more a function of repetition, compulsion, and recreation of past relationships into the present. So you can certainly have a strong sense of self. And have a past relationship that is difficult for you, that you are still dealing with and healing from, that you will, through projective identification, expel part of the self that you don't want to identify with, if that makes sense. Um, You go on to say, or does having a strong sense of self at least give a person the self-awareness to know when they are engaging in dysfunctional projective identification? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's another way to put it. You go on to say, is it even right to label some projective identification as dysfunctional and others as functional? So this is my model. Some people will say that projective identification is always dysfunctional. It's part of the definition. But my model I have adopted or developed is to really expand projective identification into a lot of different types of interactions. And in my definition, which isn't shared by everyone by any means, is that there are absolutely dysfunctional and functional projective identification. So one of the functional ways to use projective identification is that we internalize our relationship with our parents when they're being good to us. And, through projective identification, we might recreate that relationship in the present so that we can have a loving moment with our spouse. Listen to all my other episodes on projective identification for more information. Okay, let's go into to another email. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. He writes, I want to get your thoughts on grief of the loss of a spouse. My wife lost her battle to pancreatic cancer, pancreatic cancer recently. Are you able to talk about dealing with grief and loss of purpose? I am missing a sense of direction after her death while she was alive. I would always have short-term goals with taking her to doctor appointments, making sure she was drinking and eating, making sure she took her medicine on time. But now I don't have those things and I am having a bit of trouble adjusting to the new normal. End of email. Well, first off, I'm really, really sorry for your loss. That is devastating. I cannot imagine what you're going through. And yeah, it's the new normal is a lack of direction and a lack of purpose. And I would allow yourself to be in that space. It's expected that you would have a lot of feelings after the loss of your wife and it would also make a lot of sense that your whole world is now different it's like it's like taking a spaceship to another planet and a whole new set of priorities are there or a lack thereof right while she was alive particularly at the end your whole life revolved around her and that made all the, that was that made sense you're a compassionate person, you care, you loved her, you'd still do. And now all of that time is just wide open. And you haven't been given much time during that time to think about what you want to do. I mean, what you wanted to do was take care of her. But what you really wanted to do probably was have her to be cancer free, but that wasn't possible. And so now all of a sudden, you can think about yourself. And I find that One of the things that happens to a lot of people in your situation is that they will you'll sometimes feel guilty for thinking about yourself. Because for so long, the situation was such that you couldn't really think about yourself. And to think about your own needs and doing things for yourself, you judged yourself as being selfish. And so you haven't maybe been in connection with your own hobbies or your own interests, your own social life. And so it's going to take some time to reconnect with that. And remember that grief is a dual process. Humans will go from two different positions. They won't go through stages. They can go through stages, but they don't usually. But they almost always go through a dual process, which is a process of bouncing back and forth between two different modes. One mode of grieving, feeling, thinking, reminiscing, hurting. And that's the grief mode. And then the other mode is the rebuilding mode moving on, having a good time, not thinking about it as much, getting things done. And I would be mindful of that, what your body needs to do as you go through that. Also, reading books on grief. In my travels, I've picked up a few good ones. A lot of you might know this is a very, both these books are actually pretty popular. So many of you probably have these books in yourself. But The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, it's a very easy read, it, but it's it's about her process of lo- losing her spouse. And Dark Nights of the Soul by Thomas More, which is another popular book. And this is just a general book. Uh, the subtitle is A Guide to Finding Your Way Through Life's Ordeals. Again, that's The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion and Dark Nights of the Soul by Thomas More. Both books... You can just read a chapter at a time and feel like they get you. So I might check out those books. I think they're pretty cheap. You can buy used ones on Amazon. Also, think of it as an opportunity for you to get in touch with the next chapter of your life. I'm guessing that your wife would have wanted you to do this, to think about yourself after sacrificing so much for your wife while she was sick. This is a grand new adventure for you. You get to define the next chapter of your life yourself and how do you want it to look like. And like I said, I'm guessing she would want that for you. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. We talked about some some tough topics today. I hope that everyone out there is doing Okay and i'm doing okay if uh, i know sometimes people worry that when i talk about tough subjects that i'm depressed or something i'm not i'm i'm doing good like my life i have my family i have my animals i have my rainy days in seattle that makes me feel cozy on the inside when i'm inside i have my extended family i have my little pleasures in life <laughs> Um, I am afraid of what's going to happen with our society. I am disappointed, like I said. But I am optimistic. The long arch of justice, wait, the long arc of history bends towards justice. And we're, we just keep moving towards it. Three steps forward, one step back sort of a thing. And we'll get there. As a society, we've come so far in order to get there. We got to maybe do some stuff that's alarming. We might have to have some growing pains, so it's not without its strife, but I have faith in my fellow humans. Uh, I'm a bit of a history buff. And if it's one thing I could say is that in a lot of ways, we have progressed as a society, even in my lifetime. And in 100 years, in 300 years, they will look back to our time and see our time as defined by what we did to move the arc of history a little bit more towards justice, a little bit more towards what's right. We have a long way to go, and I'm sure in in 300 years, we'll still have a, a ways to go as well, but... I have optimism, I have trust, I believe in us as a race, as a human race, as a country. I believe in us. I know not everyone does, but I do. And please take care of yourself, because we all deserve that, don't we? Please take care of yourself.